Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. All right, welcome to the conversation. We're gonna have an interesting and potentially controversial conversation right now about warfare, interesting. Uh, we're bringing on Dr. Robert Bishop. He's the Dean of the University of South Florida uh, School of Engineering and founder and president and CEO of the Institute of Applied Engineering. Uh, Dr. Bishop, welcome. Thank you, thank you for being, for inviting me here. Uh, no problem, so, um, so you've got uh, an interesting uh, idea that you're pushing forward. So we're worried about Russia and Ukraine out of many, many examples. We're worried about China and the South China Sea and Taiwan. And especially with Ukraine, we're worried that a physical conflict is gonna break out. Um, you wanna go in a different direction. It's also slightly controversial, but what's the direction you wanna go? Okay, well, first of all, let me let me say that, you know, I'm not a politician uh, and I'm not a military leader. So I don't want to be second guessing their decisions, but I do want to provide decision makers with options. Okay, so the reality of conflict has changed and we need to adapt. The problem is that we aren't educating our next generation of thinkers to think about the next generation of conflict. So by tapping into the tools and talents from the realms of engineering, computer science, the hard sciences, social sciences, ethics, and the legal community, among others, we can develop and deploy non-lethal technologies to address the increasingly blurred boundaries of conflict. So the idea is is not uh, is not new, but I think it's time that we position less than lethal as a viable option in our portfolio to address the new age of conflict. So this age of conflict is powered by technology advances especially sharpened by global internet connectivity, coupled with advances in artificial intelligence and machine learning. So less than lethal options are tied to technology, but with a strong and critical component of the social science human elements layered with moral, moral principles and ethics. So what I'm talking about really is integrated deterrence. Now. Diplomacy is always the first choice, but we know that often diplomacy fails, unfortunately. Okay. So, Bob, I think that a lot of folks might not understand exactly the, what you're proposing here because you're saying let's not go to a physical war. Good, everybody's on board, and and you're saying sometimes you know the deterrence we have is not enough, and diplomacy is good, but sometimes won't work, right? So. What do you mean by less than lethal action? Well, so most sophisticated technology is controlled in some ways with computer chips. And if there's a chip inside, it likely can be hacked and we know how to hack. And that's one example of what I mean by less than lethal. Now, um, the question that I have is, are Americans ready for armed conflict with Russia or China? Are we prepared to send our daughters and our sons to fight in Eastern Europe or in the Pacific? 
So we've gotten terrific over the last 20 years at launching drones to rid ourselves of terrorists hiding out in Afghanistan, Iraq and Syria. But there's no way for a drone to deal with the situation we're faced with today. So if our warplanes fly over Beijing or over Moscow, we have failed. We are hosed. So I think that, let me give you an example. Let me create a scenario for you. It's a simple scenario. But let's say that we know about a foreign adversary, maybe a foreign agent or maybe just an individual with the intent to harm the United States. We see this person is going into a restaurant. Okay, we certainly can't drone strike the restaurant. Mm, but with a few do. clicks of a keyboard, I know <laughs> yeah. this is what we're trying to avoid though. So with a few clicks of a keyboard, we can get their credit card declined, causing quite a scene in the restaurant. Then when they walk back out to their car in disgust, we prevent the engine from starting. Cars have chips too. They can't grab and pay for a taxi to the hotel unless they have cash. And even if the person does get to the hotel somehow, their hotel reservation has been canceled. So we've we've done three things. We've disrupted, we've disoriented, and we've disarmed without firing a shot. Now you can imagine how that story could be scaled. Uh, you know, to include uh, larger groups than one person. But so I'm not sending in the troops, but I'm getting the job done. And I believe it beats the heck out of sending our sons and daughters into harm's way when other options are available. But Bob, aren't we gonna wind up at the same door here? Because if you hack the bejesus out of Russia, for example, um, and everything comes to a standstill and Maybe their electric power grid isn't even working. Well, that's a significant problem, right, for them. And then number one, that's a humanitarian problem potentially as well, especially if there's pandemonium. But secondly, it's not like they're gonna be like, oh, okay, let's just let them slide. No, they're gonna attack us back and do the same thing to us. Certainly, it appears the Russians have that capability, and I would be shocked if the Chinese didn't have that capability. So. Isn't that also a, a kind of a disastrous form of a Cold War? Well, I, I think that I understand that some people will be reluctant to accept you know, the new reality of this high tech global conflict. I understand that because with change comes a sense of loss. And we need to be especially sensitive to those that feel that the world is heading to an undesirable place as you've just described. And I don't wanna be part of that. Uh, part of that uh, in encouraging that feeling. But the United States today faces a far different range of adversaries than it did generations past. Can we continue to, ad to address most conflicts as we have over the centuries, leading to the use of deadly war machines? New technologies allow hostile parties to harm the United States and our interests without ever leaving the safety of their country or their home. Our adversaries have already gotten the memo on the viability of less than lethal options. From the cyber attack on solar winds, to the shutdown of the colonial pipeline, to the ransomware attack on US meatpacking plants, the breadth and depth of the impact of these methods that don't involve pulling a trigger are self-evident. But here's the difference, those are unethical. I am not suggesting shutting down power grids in foreign countries. I am not suggesting shutting down meat packing plants. What I am suggesting is 
is for us to reimagine conflict, but to but to understand that the technology advances have to be coupled with the human aspect, has to be coupled with ethics, has to be coupled with moral principles. And we are not, in my opinion, we are not considering that in any deep fashion in the way that we're preparing for this for this new uh, new world of, of, of conflict. And the stakes right. of a direct military conflict with nuclear armed countries, as well as those protected under their umbrellas, is so high as to make full on conflicts largely infeasible, at least I hope so. But I'm worried that the hacking is going to lead to a higher percentage chance than a lower percentage chance. Because if we can hack, they can hack. And what if they, okay, you say we should do ethics. United States military is not famous for that. But even if we act ethically, but we hack them in a way that we find proportional, what if they hack our nukes? And all of a sudden, it's not proportional. And so I am really, really worried about this. And let me ask it in this way, Dr. Bishop. I'd be okay. shocked if the US military isn't already doing this. And every once in a while, we threaten and kind of tease Russia like, hey, you better not mess around with us, otherwise we'll do even more hacking. So aren't they already doing this anyway? Well, you know, of course I'm not I'm not behind a wire, so I, I don't know that. I suspect that could be the case. But what I'm suggesting is is a reimagination of how we think about conflict. Okay, uh, how we address conflict. I know that many uh, uh, places of higher education of which I'm part of, we do not integrate social science and technology very well. We do not integrate ethics and moral principles very well. Uh, what I'm suggesting is, is that yes, I am afraid of the same things that you've just mentioned. However, what what I'm suggesting is, you know, let's take a step back, think about. Uh, what does the future of conflict look like? I believe that the the the, the technology uh, is is scary enough that we need to get our hands around it now. And so I would rather not avoid the conversation. I would rather have one. And in the end, uh, it, it may be that we decide this is not an option that we want to provide our our politicians and our military leaders. Um, I don't think that's a place we'll come to, but it could be. It could be that uh, we focus strictly on defensive measures. Uh, but I think all these things are, are are integrated. So what I want to be able to do is to is to unleash the most powerful weapons in our defense of our country, which is the brilliant minds of our students. And we need to empower them with uh, with ethical less than lethal methods based on our moral principles and dealing with threats to our nation. Um, look, um, I don't believe that drone strikes are the only option um, to protect our sons and our daughters. And when we do that, you know, we, we've brought home too many of our sons and daughters who are injured, who are who are uh, uh, worse than injured, and at the same time, we've we, we've we've uh, harmed many non-combatants, you know, children. Okay, so what I would say um, is that I agree with what you said. It is 
uh, a situation that may appear controversial. I'm not suggesting that we hack the Russians or the Chinese. I'm, I'm suggesting that we take a step back and think about conflict and, and think about what are the less than lethal options that the United States and American citizens are comfortable with yeah. and that we can use to protect our interest. Because I don't know about you, but I don't want to send any more of our daughters and sons into harm's way if yeah. we don't have to. Yeah, I'm worried about unintended consequences that it might lead to that anyway. But Dr. Bishop, whether I want to or not, the hacking wars are already underfoot. Or not underfoot, I wish they were, they're afoot. <laughs> and so I'm sure both sides are working on it feverishly. There's no question about that. In fact, at least in my last question. How vulnerable do you think we are today? I mean, so like, for example, Democrats were worried the Russians could hack into the voting booths, and then the Republicans turned around and worried that the Venezuelans could hack into the voting booths in, in 2020, right? And let alone all the power grids and all the other things that we've heard. Are we not there yet, or we are there, we just don't know it, and we haven't gone to a hacking war yet? Well, I think I, I think the uh, the conflicts are underway, as the examples I gave uh, show. But you know, President Biden's uh, infrastructure plan, at least at one point, um, called for 180 billion dollars in new R&D spending on emerging technologies that can drive military innovation in the less than lethal space over the coming decades. I believe this would be a game-changing investment. I think that that the uh, the conflicts are here. Uh, I think we do better at them than we may think. Uh, we may we may think that we are, on the one hand. But on the other hand, I'm very concerned. I mean, there's not a day that I don't read the news that I don't hear about another hack uh, of data, of information, uh, and so forth. So, yeah. so I think it is upon us. Uh, I I don't uh, discount at all your concerns that um, this may end up being a tit for tat, and that it may. It may spiral out of control. So to avoid that, I think we need now to start having that conversation, authentic, open conversation about what are the ethics involved, what are our moral principles involved, and and how do we create policies and practices that that make us proud um, right. of the way that we're you know reacting to conflict. All right, Dr. Robert Bishop, he's at the University of South Florida and also CEO of Institute of Applied Engineering. Thank you for joining us, we appreciate it. Thank you. Back on the conversation, Ryan Grimm, legendary DC Bureau Chief of The Intercept, also TYT contributor. On to talk about Washington culture, Washington media and all the shenanigans going on right now. Grimm, how you doing? I'm doing great. How you doing? Rock and roll, brother. All right. So today we covered a story about Hillary Clinton. Willie Geist interviewed her for some reason about winning elections. So Ryan, that leads to just kind of a broader question: Do people in D.C. not realize how they sound? And it's a genuine question. Like, so they will say things that seem outrageous to the average person and not at all realize it's outrageous. Like Hillary Clinton should teach Democrats on how to win elections. With a very straight face, yeah. right? Uh, and, right? And or they'll say like, "Oh, the people of West Virginia don't want Build Back Better, having never checked a poll in their lives, etc." Right. I think a lot of progressives in the base think, 
Oh no, they know and they're lying to us, etc. My theory is no, they brainwashed themselves as well. But I'm curious, being a reporter in DC, being around other reporters, what's your best guess as to what's what's going through mainstream media's head as they do these absurd things? I think your your guess is closer to the truth. And and it's because their definition of success is different than a normal person's definition of success when it when it comes to politics. Like a, a a normal person thinks about politics as a means to an end and the end being to make their lives better. So you're going to we're going to vote you into office, you're going to pass laws that are going to make the world a better place and make my life better. But that's that's the that's the normal way to think about politics. The DC way of thinking about politics is 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 becoming powerful, becoming well known, being clever, you know, knowing, you know, having, you know, having the most contacts, having having power. Not necessarily using the power, but having power. And so so Hillary Hillary Clinton, a globally famous person, extremely well connected in Washington, first lady, senator, secretary of state, Democratic nominee, a a a major figure in politics from the time that most reporters you know have have been involved in in covering politics, and so from that perspective, she's a big deal. Like she, in some ways, she's a winner. A normal person looks at it and says, "Well, no, <laughs> she she lost." And the, the the purpose of politics is not self advancement. The the purpose is advancing our interests and on that and on that front you know she she lost to the 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 guy who starred in celebrity apprentice and so why would you be asking her for advice and so i so i think it it goes to just different ideas that people in washington have about what what success in politics means compared to people who aren't invested in the same game that people in dc are so, Ryan, I actually think that's a brilliant answer, and I hadn't quite thought of it exactly that way. That no, from a Willie Geist perspective, from a Washington mainstream media perspective, like she won. She she's a huge winner. She's rich. She's famous. She's powerful. Of course, I would ask her. She has more money than me. <laughs> what, what more do you want? She's got a podcast and everything. <laughs> well, then we're in great shape. Um, so, but by the way, there's truth to that. If I, look, I will make this prediction on air. Well, first of all, this prediction could be is very likely to be useless, as you'll see in a second. If because it starts with this, if uh, any one of us, you, me, any progressive, overnight became incredibly wealthy, my guess is that the press would treat them really, really well. Um, and and yeah, your opinions start to matter. Yeah, yeah, because then they view you as credible. Oh, that's a rich and powerful person. We must kiss their ass because that they, and it's not to kiss their ass because they don't think of it that way. They would be greatly insulted if you framed right. it that way. They think of it in terms of this is an honorable person, this is an important person, and we need to get that person's advice. It doesn't matter how they made the money. It doesn't matter if they lost, they won, they delivered anything. So, and it, that's that's a great great answer. So, now I'm going to move on to something that's even trickier and more challenging. How do progressives in Washington think? Now, this is a touchy subject because we got Representative Jayapal saying us not getting built back better was a success. I don't, 
to me, I don't know what she's talking about. I, I don't. Right. That doesn't sound like we're on the same planet. But I think that there's a giant contingent of progressives who think, no, Jayapal did a great job, even though we don't have Build Back Better. And her, the strategy of decoupling Build Back Better from infrastructure proved to be a complete and utter failure to the naked eye. But what's the state of progressive thought in, in DC specifically? I don't mean the base, I mean right. leaders in, in, in DC. Do they think Jayapal's nailing it and, and the base is asking for too much? I mean, it's it's split. I mean, so it's kind of split three ways, sort of. So one one side says, "Well, it's not over yet." You know, Mansion and Mansion and the White House are still talking a build back better, and we can talk more about this if you want. A build back better bill, you know, is still alive and still might might go through. And then, but then on the other side, it's it's split between people who say, "Look, results are the only thing that matters." You know, it it's it's dead at this point. And so everybody involved, you know, with the decision making that went that went along with the strategy has culpability for it being dead. You can't say that it was a success up until the moment it died. Now, if you say that it's not actually dead yet, then that of course changes that changes that calculus. The other side, her defenders, because like you said, there are a bunch of people who are defending her, and they they would they would say this. They'd say if that a her job was to get it through the house. Uh, and she got it through the house and a lot of people said that when she struck this deal with with Josh Gottheimer and his and his little gang, that Gottheimer was going to double cross her and that the commitment she got wasn't worth uh, you know the paper that it was written on. And you know, the new numbers would come out, Gottheimer would walk, the whole thing would fall apart. And in fact, when the numbers did come out, Gottheimer and his crew did vote for it and it got through the house. And so people say, look, what what people were demanding was that they vote on infrastructure and build back better at the same time. And so if they'd have voted on infrastructure and build back better at the same time, they would have passed infrastructure through the house and passed build back better on that same night back over to the Senate. And probably most of the squad would have voted for it that night. And you still have a decoupling that takes place in that situation. And so her defenders would say, look, what's the difference? It took four days or an extra week or whatever, and both, but both of them passed through the house and did so with the President of the United States saying, I have a commitment from Joe Manchin. You know, don't worry, I've got I've got this. Right. Uh, now right. her, her, right. crit, her critics in DC are like, no, like you can't. Joe, like Joe Biden is is sun is you know sundowning. Uh, he's never been a good deal maker. His his record in Washington on that on that front is extremely unimpressive. It was it was worse when he was you know vice president. Harry Reid had to tell Obama you know stop sending Joe Biden up here. He's screwing these deals up every time. And that Biden should have been saved from himself rather than uh, just taking his word that he was going to get this done. So, but Ryan. Uh, they're they're doing a sleight of hand, and it's it's really insulting and patronizing. And uh, and if the if I knew for a fact that the squad was going to vote yes, if they pass it through the house at the same time, I would be dispirited by that and and think that that was a failure on their part too, because the sleight of hand is obvious. Well, if you look at what they were demanding, if, I mean, if you look at what they were demanding a vote on both at the same time. No, but Ryan, the, 
No, I remember very specifically, and I quoted the New York Times on this several times because people are now lying about it. No, the idea was that they don't vote for it in the House until the Senate passes Build Back Better. Passing it together in the House is totally and utterly pointless. I mean, I mean, like, so what? Like, Gottheimer, if I was Gottheimer, I'd make that deal in a second. I think these poor suckers, we know we're going to kill it in the Senate. What yeah. difference does it make if I pass it in the House? They, and that's, and that's the problem that they, they were never crystal clear about that. They would say that sometimes, other times they would say, we need an agreement. You know, we, we need a pre conference agreement on Build Back Better when we'll sign it. And so there was never, and, and this goes back, this is this is on Jayapal. Jayapal is the leader of the Progressive Caucus. She was the one uh, who was you know, or developing the strategy. So she needed to say, okay, what, what, in speci- what, what in particular is the ask? Like, what is the thing that we're saying? But it was all over the place. Like, you, you, like the New York Times would say at some point that, that they got to pass Build Back Better first. Uh, Joe Biden even said that at one point, that you got to pass Build Back Better first. Uh, and and at at the same time that that he's it's either both or neither. Pelosi said that. Schumer. Everybody said that. That was the that was a strategy. But then there started developing a lot of wiggle room. Well, as long as there's a framework. Well, as long as there's pre-conference agreement. And that's on Jayapal because that that is within her power to set to set the specific contours of what they're going to agree to or not agree to. And and because it was left vague, then once the when the pressure came. They were they were broken. So look, I I can go for twenty minutes explaining what is wrong with that strategy. It's preposterous. Like you, who cares if you pass it through the house? That is irrelevant. Totally and utterly irrelevant. It must pass both houses. And if you don't understand, the Senate is more likely to kill it. You really should retire instantly. And and Ryan, it gets to the maybe the heart of this even more so, which is. Now look, we all know this, they know it too. They're just trying to find excuses to get comfortable with not delivering, okay? But but what, what there is one thing I don't know about the way that they're thinking. And you're a great reporter in DC that actually covers this stuff accurately, right? So do they really believe that Biden and Pelosi are on their side? Like, because I don't know for sure that Build Back, I never knew for sure, and I still don't know for sure that Build Back Better is completely dead and was gonna get completely killed. If it does, I'm actually a little bit surprised by that. Like, I was a little bit surprised that they killed Grand Bargain when I thought for sure they were gonna do the Grand Bargain because Democrats had already agreed. And and it turns out we got lucky because the Republicans got too greedy, right? And this might be a similar situation with Build Back Better. But the plan was obvious from day one, and I said it on the air a year ago. They were going to bring it to the Senate, where they were going to shred it and leave only the parts that corporations were in favor of, right? And that's always been the strategy. Does Jayapal and even the squad, do they not know that? Do they really genuinely believe that Biden and Pelosi and Schumer are on their side? Well, there, there's some real schizophrenia on that on that front for, for them, because on the, on the one hand, Biden, Schumer, and Pelosi had no reason to propose it if they weren't for it, they're, they're, because there was no demand. Like, what was Biden elected on? Biden was elected on being in his basement in Wilmington and not being Bernie Sanders, and not being Donald Trump. And so, you know, once he proved to everyone that he was not Bernie Sanders, and then he proved in the general that he was not Donald Trump, 
the people that put him into office were content. Like that was it. Like they're all right, good. We go back. You know, you remember all the memes. We can go back to brunch. That was that. That's a very that's a very real phenomenon. That so he didn't have to kind of pro- propose this type of idea. And if you're going to propose something big and then flop on it, you know that's that sucks for you. Like that that undermines your 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 presidency, your political capital. You're, if you're if you're going to fail on something, you're better off. You know, not you're better off not even trying. There's this there's this idea out there that 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 there's some advantage to him to like proposing it and then not doing it. But there's nobody that is made happy, uh, you know, by the, by that state of affairs. On the other hand, it became quite clear, uh, you know, around the the late summer fall when when Pelosi in particular, with her hand pushed by uh, by by Gottheimer, starts really trying to break the progressive caucus and split these two bills apart from each other and and for and for the progressive caucus for the like leadership of the progressive caucus yeah i think it was hard for them to get their head around what on earth was going on because they thought that they had these firm allies in 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 pelosi and and biden yeah, schumer by the way it. you just answered yeah it schumer by the way but schumer by the way always opposed what pelosi was doing like this like he yeah. he was warning like this is a mistake this is going to blow this like Schumer, I think does want to get this through. No, I don't. I so that's one thing you and I disagree on, uh, and we've had that conversation before. Schumer doesn't want to get anything done. Schumer was opposed to the idea of coupling in the first place because that would handcuff him in the Senate. He wanted to be able to kill well, him. Was, in the was, I mean, it's there's a lot of evidence that it was Schumer's idea in the beginning to couple. Okay, I, I would be shocked beyond belief. But but I, you're the only person that I well, would trust that. That that might be possible, okay? But honestly, you answered the most important question. If Jayapal or anyone else, yeah, they thought were like, that they're like, what's? They were very confused. If they were confused, that's already damning, right? That they don't have any idea how politics in Washington works. And if they thought Pelosi and Biden were genuinely on their side, and Godheimer, that Godheimer was going to work with them. Well, not that Godheimer was on their side. Come on, I know, I know, but that you were going to get a deal with Godheimer where you were actually going to pass it eventually through the Senate. Godheimer was never going to agree to a deal that passed through the Senate. Come on, you don't know that? No, that if they actually think that they're the world's put Godheimer aside, it's Biden and Pelosi. There's right. no one in the progressive base that believes Biden and Pelosi are on the progressive side. If you believe that as a progressive leader, a you're obviously a sucker, and b are you a progressive leader? You know, so and that's and that that's why handcuffing them to this was so important. Like because you, because then you combine their their desire to actually publish uh, to pass this infrastructure bill uh, with their public commitments because people in Washington end up doing a lot of things that they don't want to do uh, because of the politics of the situation because of commitments they've they've made and uh, you know did did Lyndon Johnson want to sign the Civil Rights Act, or did he see it as you know his 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 path to to greatness or whatever? Uh, you know he he he's the most the most racist guy to ever sign you know any type of emancipatory uh, legislation ever. Uh, so people do you know there 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 are craven egos in in Washington that can be boxed in with the right movements and the right politics, the right the right strategies. So that that's and that's why. We talked so much about it, the importance of coupling these two together to because it's it was the first time in forever that progressives had leverage that was credible. 
because in Washington, progressives are known as people who are going to cave. They're suckers. They they are they're, they they you know if if you know if they have an opportunity to to expand Medicaid to half a million people or get nothing, in the end, almost all of them are going to cave and say, "We'll we'll do this." This is a half a million lives that are on the line. We're going and everyone in Washington knows that. Yeah. And that's why they have no leverage. For the first time, they had leverage because they didn't really like this bipartisan infrastructure bill, and everybody knew it. And, yeah. and they and they gave that up. It, it it was awful, awful leadership. Anyone saying otherwise is just kidding themselves to be polite in Washington. And yeah, it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable saying that Jayapal blew it, and she and the rest of Washington treat progressive leadership as suckers. That's super uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable saying it out loud. Doesn't make it any less real. It's now blaringly, glaringly obvious. And so uh, I can't wait for a day where there's a progressive leader who's actually strong and and can do strategy and shows them that, nah, they misunderstood progressives. But right now, that is definitely not where we are. And it's just, I, I don't think they have any idea how incredibly frustrated their own voters are. That they think a 5% fight is real. No, we want a 95% fight. We want actual things to pass. And only garbage that passed was that corporate infrastructure bill. And that ain't changed at all. So anyway, Ryan, we're way out of time. Thank you for getting us actual information, whether we like it or we don't. But that <laughs> is the news and that is the reality. Yeah. And so it appears the only thing they respond to is pressure. And that's not surprising. So yes, within bounds, where there's no talk of physical safety or insane things like the right wing does or some idiots on the left do, right? There needs to be tremendous pressure put on the progressive caucus because apparently they don't get it at all. They think failure is winning. Um, so all right, Ryan Grimm from The Intercept, uh, we appreciate it. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. Got it.